Hello and welcome to episode 120 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies for the casual spike. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane. Is it, is it Beeps? Stan, it's been like, I don't know what, how long, like 30, 40 episodes since you've changed the intro line from Magic Gathering podcast for the casual spike, focused on the latest decks, trend strategies, and modern. And it still throws me for a loop. I'm like, Stan, Stan, you're, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. Oh, no, it's right. That's right. That's the way we do it now. What kind of name is Beeps? It's a, it's a pseudonym, so just keep rolling with it, you know? Also with us, the godfather, Dave Harbarger. I didn't bust in early this time. Look at that. And we don't have time for this because we messed up this episode. And we, <laughs> we started with a casual hang episode, and then we have five topics to go through. So just go, Stan, go. Well, you did, you, you did that thing you do, Dave, which is just like every, every once in a while you get a wild hair, and then we, we look at the notes the next day, and it's like, oh, Dave wrote 13 pages. <laughs> oh, God, Dave wrote the episode about stuff none of us want to talk about. Last night, I just I was going through my bulk boxes, and then I got done with that, and I found some stuff, and then I was like, I'm just going to work on the episode, and I turned on uh, Future Nostalgia by Dua Lipa, and then I woke up <laughs> a zillion hours later with 13 pages of notes. I hope you enjoy them. She will, I think. She's an is-it player as well. So Written in a language you had to have translated, <laughs> papyrus on your chest. That's right. On this week's episode, we're going to try and do a lot. In fact, maybe we're biting off more than we can chew. First, we're going to do a breakdown, sending off the current modern metagame and consider whether the release of Strixhaven might change the format as we know it today. Then we'll dive into some call time cards. That's right, call time cards to do a sunset show for the last set and reevaluate our initial impressions from Coldland to figure out what cards we got right what we got wrong, and how it ultimately impacted our favorite formats. That was a really tough paragraph to read. You're losing them, Stan. You're, you're losing them. Get, make it snappy. Make it quick. <laughs> then we'll wind down with a brief brew session and chat about the new Strixhaven tools that we're looking forward to playing with, including a return to our roots to talk about our all-time favorite deck, Is It Phoenix, and why putting cards in the graveyard can be good. Dun-dun-dun-caca! And finally, if time allows... Fingers crossed, the nation of Dive Down shared a ton of amazing Q&A material for us. Hopefully we can get to those, but um, you know how effusive we can get when Is It Phoenix is on the mind. There's no chance it's happening. Zero percent. We're not going to have time for questions. Hold on, before we get in, I also um, want to thank my two co-hosts for taking the lead on this one. I was almost going to skip this episode. It's been a wild week for me. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be able to play Peanut Gallery. You're just going to hear me just chime in with stuff now and then to troll my co-hosts and annoy them for critiquing their notes. That's funny because I looked in here and you have a bunch of notes in here. So yeah, I've got a bunch of notes. They're all just like, uh, I think that I actually said this. Oh, oh God. Great. That's exactly what we want. <laughs> oh, God. This episode is going to be three hours. All right. Let's housekeep. Shout out to a couple of new patrons to join the Dive Down Nation, Andrew W. and Dylan P. Dylan P. back again. Took a break. You know what brought him back? Faithless looting, friends. Faithless looting mm. brought Dylan back mm. to us. Welcome back, Dylan. We love boomerang patrons. We always welcome you back. Time's a flat circle. Mm-hmm. Also, shout out to a couple of patrons who increased their tier, Simon G and Blue Cheese. Thank you both very much. Is Blue Cheese new? I don't think I've heard that name before. I, it doesn't ring a bell. They tweet. Yeah. Okay. The they, lurker, really? Thank you, Blue Cheese. 
If you'd like to support the show, you can find us over on Patreon at patreon.com slash the dive down. You can also support the show while playing Magic the Gathering with a Mana Trader subscription for renting Magic Online cards. If you use coupon code the dive down, all one word, when you subscribe for Mana Traders, you'll get 15% off your first three months of a Magic Online rental subscription. And hey, if you're an arena player, you can also support the show without spending any money by downloading the free deck tracking companion software over at untapped.thedivedown.com. We get a little kickback from that as well. All right, we got to keep it moving. Keep it right. moving. Yeah, I was going to say the first stop in this station's wedding style episode, where we're the first station we're going to stop at is the breakdown, where Stan has put together uh, an assessment of the modern modern metagame. Yeah, it's a b- bit of an assessment, but I've got I've got questions for you guys. And obviously, since we have a lot to get through today, you might be surprised that I'm going to try and squeeze two modern events into one short breakdown. You gotta. I gotta try. It's the dive down style. We put we put everything in this bag of holding. That's right. Instead of going through each top eight individually, what I'm going to try to do instead is talk about the finals from each event. Then I'm going to look at the overall deck spread and consider whether Strixhaven shows any signs of potentially disrupting the current top decks in the modern format. And we had two pretty high-level modern events this weekend, which is what I'm going to talk about too. On Friday, there was a modern super qualifier. No clue what that means, but it sounds fancy. And then on Saturday, there was a showcase challenge. Same thing. Sounds good. Who knows how to get in it or what it means to anybody. But, you know, I love good branding, so we're going to acknowledge it as probably the big deal that I'm assuming that it is. Mm -hmm. And the tournaments actually had some pretty surprising finals, in my opinion. Because in the super qualifier, the winner was Eldrazi Tron. Mm -hmm. Haven't heard that name in a while. And they beat Blue Black Mill in the finals. (laughs) Tier zero, baby. Then in the showcase challenge, the winner was Amulet Titan a deck and in second place was esper control huh perhaps you mean uh esperka huh what is that what is esperka esper it's it's esper control with some saffron sprinkled on top mm. i thought it was mm. a a secret international language that we were ima- imagining in our utopian p- future all of us will speak esperka <laughs> esperandica yeah all right i want to talk about esper control really quickly with you guys Because the shell is pretty similar to standard blue-white control, but the deck is essentially splashing black for some Esper Charms, some Fatal Pushes, and some Kaya's Guile in the main deck. And then more sideboard cards that are black, including Kalita's Trader of Get, Thoughtseize, Eliminate, and Go for the Throat. What do you think that brings to the deck? So it brings some proactive hand disruption in your Thoughtseizes. Esper Charm, of course, is like, oh, just one Thoughtseize. just one Thoughtseize, yeah. Okay, uh, scratch that note. Esper Charm, of course, is guaranteed two for one, right? Draw two or disc or target player discards two. Yeah, at instant speed. Yeah, at instant speed. And I think it's a disenchant is the third mode. Oh, that's right. Yep, yep. And then Fatal Push, which is a, a nice removal spell. I've heard. Mm-hmm. Tease play. It's really, it's really about go for the throat. <laughs> yes. Which is, I mean, go for the throat is. I love, I love all of the two mana instant speed removal spells that we have to select from. So it's like monocolored creature, non-black creature, non-artifact creature, non-legendary creature, non-black, non-artifact creature. Yeah. That's what go for. Yeah. Like isn't go for the throat. Just, is that strictly worse than Doomblade? Like what am I missing here? No one knows. No one knows. Yeah. I, I would love to talk really quickly about Kaya's Guile in particular, because there are some MTG finance chat surrounding this card 
a few weeks ago, it was like two bucks. Now it's closer to 10. It's been spiking recently. And as far as I can tell, the only real reason is that it's just popping up in this Esper control deck in modern that is getting, getting increasing popularity. So I've seen this deck floating around on Twitter, but haven't taken a deep look at it. How many, does this deck run four Kaya's Guiles? It, like it runs a lot, right? Yeah. So the one that came in second place had three in the main and then a fourth in the side. Wow. That's amazing. For those who don't remember, it's an instant one white black. Choose two. Each opponent sacks a creature. Exile all cards from each opponent's graveyard. Create a 1-1 white and black spirit creature token of flying. And then you gain four life. But it also has Entwine 3, where you get to choose all modes if you pay the Entwine cost. Guys, what do you think is the best mode on this card? I'm assuming it's get rid of your graveyard. However, I'm sure that good players can uh, come up with an opportune time to make any of the other ones good, including each opponent sacrifices a creature, and also you gain four life. Man. So, like, what, th- this Esperka deck is run, how many, how many... Um, Esper Charms is a typically run main. I believe this one had three. So there's six, three CMC instant speed modal spells mm-hmm. that this deck thinks it can just run and apparently gets away with it, which is which is delightful. Can I blow your mind? It also has, I think, two or three Archmage's Charms. I was going to say it also has that. Yeah, that card too. Amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, this, this, the, okay, the fact that this card is seeing legitimate play is a little bit surprising to me because... Sure, we get flexibility. And sure, you can just run this main deck and do things like buy yourself maybe three turns against a prowess deck. Like, let's say let's say you make a flying blocker and gain four life, or like they went all in on a prowess creature that they had one of, and then you made them sacrifice it. That would be a pretty bad prowess player, in my opinion, if you had three mana open against it, you know, as your control opponent. Mm-hmm. But... Yeah, I mean, you can hit a graveyard, like you said, Dave. You can get rid of, like, a primetime or, like, an Ulamog or something. I don't know. Like, three mana is not cheap for these effects, but, you know, you, choosing two, you get that flexibility. So, and, and control decks, I, I think, in my wildly uh, extensive control deck playing, flexibility seems like the key when you have a lot of decks to deal with in the modern metagame. It's just a lot of decks. A lot of cards bring in a lot of different options here. If you look at, you know, this is modal card the deck basically archmage charm has three modes to choose from cryptic command has four modes to choose from drown in the lock has two modes to choose from esper charm has three modes to choose from kaya's guile has four modes to kaya's choose charm. from kaya's yeah exactly so this is like if you wanted every card that came bullet like your your deck looks like a powerpoint presentation with all the bullets that are flying around here you know what i'm saying so i think it's a nice thing like you said to be able as a control player to have a lot of options if you can think ahead and and prepare yourself for what's going to be good in the early game what's going to be good in the late game i, I can kind of see it but you're right all these cards do seem a little slow mm-hmm. to me but maybe it's okay where we are right now do you think that instant speed graveyard hate is important right now in modern? I just think it's nice to be able to have main deck is probably what's good about it. And so you're not running like Nihil spell bomb where yeah. you're kind of like ending up with something that's not good. You're not relying on bringing those in out of the side. You know, if you have to do it more than once, this deck also has four snapcaster mages. So if you get in that kind of turn five, six area, you can snap it back. The one thing I'll say about that mode in particular, looking at these two top 32s, I feel like the only deck, the only decks where that's relevant is like if someone has a Luris deck, uh, which is a part of the meta, but it isn't necessarily the top of the meta or like the biggest chunk of the meta. 
But uh, also just like sometimes shrinking a Tarmogoyf seems like a really great use for this tar- Kaya's Guile periodically. Yeah, I think some important stuff. I mean, we, we're looking at a lot of cards that we haven't seen a lot of in the past. Like even Drown in the Lock is not something that we're like, you know, is, is typical for a lot of these decks. And there's a couple in this deck. And what we're really seeing is a... I think is less of a reliance on the early game of like massive amounts of path. That's also ramping your opponent. Um, and not as many counter spells as you might expect in a deck like this. So your bridge is all of these three mana two for ones or potential three mana two for ones. Right. And we have things like, you know, Esper charm, Archmage's charm and Kaya's guile that are a different kind of bridge to get you to your end game of, to fairy five, right? And just taking over the game with the card advantage that either Jace, the Mind Sculptor, to fairy five, your late game snaps, cryptic command, all that kind of good stuff. So it's just, I think it's important for me at least to look at this deck and be like, well, how is this deck doing what control decks do, which is reach the end game? And I think they're just doing it with a more substantial mid game beef than we've seen in other types of control decks. And of course, as we talked about recently, Teferi is very good right now, as long as Heliod is some part of the metagame, because it can beat infinite life. Mm-hmm. And you'll even mm-hmm. notice that in this particular event, the third place deck was also a blue-white control-style deck. Uh, and uh, that's cool. Okay, let's look at the actual decks from the weekend. Um, I've got all the decks that appeared with at least four copies um, between Friday and Saturday. Um, with eight copies was Is It Prowess, followed by Mono Green Tron and Boros Burn with six copies each. And then we had Heliod Convo and Niftalite with five copies each. Okay. Yeah. And then Etron, Control, and Death Shadow were all four copies apiece, although Control was three three of those versions were blue white, one was Esper, and then among the shadow decks, three were Jund and one was four color. Okay. So let's just say for the sake of discussion, this is the tier one in modern right now for the last month or so. Do you agree, disagree, or surprise with any of these contenders? I guess the main one that's a surprise to me is Niv to Light, which has been making a lot of waves in Pioneer lately, but I uh, hadn't heard about it too much in modern in the recent, recent past, you know, the last month or so i would say so i'd i guess it's interesting that people are starting to bring that powerful you know we still want to get valky slash tybalt out via bring to light as part of a, a kind of way to give that card a new dimension but that's a lot of niv to light so i guess that people must like it at this point yeah the top performing yeah. niv deck was in fifth place um in the super qualifier and that was actually a yorion build as well Whoa, uh, that's interesting. Well, you know what? They're all Yorion by the looks of it, actually. Yeah, are they doing their kind of like Utopia Sprawl and Abundant Growth kind of vibe? Is that that where we're at? I think so. Yep. I don't have the deck in front of me to say with confidence. Uh, yep, Abundant Growth and Utopia Sprawl. We're, we're flipping, flipping cards, ramping. Shin, are you surprised by anything? The thing that's interesting to me a little bit is it's sort of tempting, I think, to see something like Burn as a top tier deck but over the past month it actually has just been sort of average and in the past maybe week two weeks ish it's been on the upswing in terms of its performance in these premier level events and so i think people are maybe realizing burn has 
game, especially against Heliod, and perhaps um, you know it's it's fast enough to get under things like Tron, and perhaps fast enough to get under things like the various control decks, and can kind of uh, just ignore some other strategies by going to the dome. So that's kind of a surprise to me, but also just Titan, which always just sort of hangs around in tier 1.5, tier 2, and here isn't kind of really anywhere this weekend, except, you know, you, you did say you saw it in the, as one of the winning decks, mm-hmm. correct? Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, so it's always around. It's just not hugely popular right now. Yeah, there were two Amulet Titan decks in the Modern Showcase, and then in the Super Qualifier, there were two red-green Titan decks, so like Titan Shift, basically. But that's it. Four decks had Primeval Titans. I broke out these top seven decks into two categories I want to present for your consideration and perhaps debate. And that was the decks to beat and then the decks that can beat. Okay? So I have three decks to beat in Modern right now, which is Is It Prowess, Green White Heliod, and X Shadow. And then the decks that can potentially beat those three are Tron, Burn, Niv, Control, and Etron. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, the, the question for me, Stan, that I thought of when you said these are the decks to beat, like what makes what makes a deck a deck to beat exactly? And by I don't mean I I question your your tier there. I think it's more what is the character what are the characteristics of these decks that make them the decks to beat? And it's kind of like, is it just I think sometimes we see raw power level of a game plan. That's just so good that it makes a deck to deck to beat. But then there's also, I think, decks that have a strong fundamental game plan combined with flexibility. Like whether that's they can they have a good sideboard or they have main deck cards that are flexible uh, or they have like the, the, the ability to play a different game plan against rougher matchups and things like that. And so what I'm getting at is I think that in different times in modern, we have seen different decks in the tier one. Mm -hmm. And right now I think we're seeing a mix here where I think we, we we don't see anything that's like a busted game one plan, perhaps besides Heliod. I think you could probably say Heliod is potentially uh, a busted game one plan. Uh, But with like with prowess and shadow, I think those are more sort of like, those are just aggressive or disruptive aggressive strategies that we've seen plenty of times. Uh, and then, but then in the, in the past we have seen decks where just like, Hey, this is, this is such an over, over like the, the flexibility and power of the decks have combined, like, let's say something like an Uro pile or a, an Urza style deck, right. Where it's just like, Hey, uh, the, there's this deck, these decks have so many different ways to beat you. Yeah. And, and I guess my point of this whole question <laughs> is, <laughs> is what do you both think about these top tier and what do you think about the decks that answer the top that that potentially answer the top that gives them those characteristics the ability to do so i don't think i added anything to what you asked stan thanks that was an incredible incredible uh case of misdirection a stream of conscious yeah Yeah. um i guess here's what i'll do i'll answer the first part of your question and then i'll let dave weigh in I think when I think about a deck to beat, it's a combination of popularity and power. And I think that's something we're yeah. seeing with Heliod, Prowess, and Shadow in particular, in that they're, all three of those are very proactive strategies that kind of demand an answer from their opponents to win, I think, with some exceptions maybe. And I think that's where Burn kind of comes in as like 
the deck that can answer the top because it gets potentially under some of those strategies. Um, whereas I feel like Prowess, Heliod, and Shadow, they're sort of setting the terms of engagement in the format currently. And and people have to uh, tweak their 75 and their main decks and play like sometimes main deck life gain in the form of Kaios Guile to actually deal with you know what's happening here. So you've basically, it sounds like they're they're asking the best questions, right? And I, I, what I what I wonder though is like, what is it about say something like Tron or something like Burn that doesn't lend themselves to being quite as good or quite as popular as these other decks, right? Like, is it the fact that Tron doesn't have the flexibility? Or you know, it has a very linear game one game plan that can get disrupted, get get disrupted, or just simply never come together. And then post sideboard, they have a lot of areas of weakness, a lot of cards that can hurt what they're trying to do, and they can just not win at all. And so I think that's kind of like that's the distinction I'm trying to get at, which is like I think that I agree with you, Sam, that these are the decks to beat. And I think my sort of foundation is flexibility and linearity like is kind of an interesting combination to have right which is like i have a lot of ways to win the game and like something like heliod right Mm. um doesn't even have to have a sideboard that is like anti-hate you know what i mean like it's like something like uh uh path to exile and skyclave apparition is just so good at being flexible while still being either main deckable or a super, like a, just a perfectly fine sideboard card to always have access to, right? Versus like, if I want to beat Heliod, I don't want to run four Blight Beetle. Right. <laughs> because it's like, and I have 11 cards from my sideboard against other decks. Yeah, they're just playing Damping Sphere, I think, to beat Heliod. So let's say you're trying to be proactive in this new metagame. I'm trying to answer the question now, which of the two categories got the most new toys? I think as far as that question goes, Stan, I think it's pretty clear that as far as from Strixhaven goes, I, I really think that there's a very slim number of cards that are modern power level from Strixhaven, and a number of them center around aggressive Magecraft cards, namely Lumimancer and Lightscribe, are probably the only cards that are modern rate in my mind. There are some removal spells that I think are reasonable in that sense, uh, especially if you look at some of the cool uh, Silver Quill cards that came up. But I think as far as anything that's going to shift the meta, it's going to be how good is Clever Lumimancer and does it lead to faster, different, more resilient uh, aggressive decks in some way or another. And we have some stuff to say about that later on. But I, I don't think that, that Strixhaven is going to make a lot of ripples here, although there are some, some things. So what what else did you see, Stan, that might make some ripples other than Prowess Magecraft kind of builds? Right. So I think those two Prowess cards are are important to point out, even though they don't look like is it Prowess cards. They look like they're probably going to require some kind of shift in that deck's strategy uh, and maybe introduce a new type of Prowess deck altogether. You know, you mentioned the Silver World. Silver Quill cards. It's Orzov. Um, and, you know, they got Vanishing Verse and Baleful Mastery and Fracture, which I think are all removal spells, essentially. So that makes me wonder whether an Orzov control deck can become more of the uh, de facto control strategy or if Esper just remains like your go-to strategy if you want to play control is three color because you want black for, you know, such strong versatile removal and, and you know, exile effects that can answer Heliad. Yeah, I mean, let me hit you with this. What if what if things get good enough that it just becomes uh, blue-black, where maybe all you want to run really is Baleful Mastery 
and that's enough. Mm -hmm. Maybe. I don't know. Also but. cool. We did get a couple of cards that I I think what I'm curious to see is whether or not they can potentially elevate other decks that we're not seeing in the current tier one because I don't think they slot really neatly into some of the strategies we've been talking about currently, which those are Strict Proctor and Elite Spellbinder. Really powerful in the way that they interact with opponents' plans, but these are like white creatures. They're essentially hate bears. And I don't know where they can go, but I wonder if they could potentially have the type of impact that Maul the Skyclave did or, or Skyclave Apparition did in elevating, you know, former white-based taxes decks and making some kind of like white-based mid-range deck more uh, powerful moving forward. Yeah, I mean, I think Strict Proctor is an important tool against a whole bunch of things, but namely Titan, right? Because they can't really interact with it. And so, um, especially without the green-white builds being popular, which it doesn't look like they are at the moment, we're back to kind of amulet. And so um, I think that that'll buy you some time, but there's probably other fringe decks from there. Elite Spellbinder, I'm a little less convinced of. I think it's a playable card, but I don't know if it's going to get there to make any major shifts in uh, in modern, at least. But we'll see. I mean, I think that it's a new tool for the toolbox. Here's a curveball. Could Niv-Mizzet be picking up some toys from all these crazy new gold cards they're seeing? I think like, Just Vanishing Verse is the card that I would put on that list of, of things that Niv might pick up in that sense. But I, I could be wrong, but that's the one that comes to mind right away for me. I wonder if some of these gold dragons might be new alternative threats that you can put into a Niv deck that Niv actually finds as well. It's potential. I think that you... Uh rip apart is also feasible i think like one of the only boros cards that runs is like lightning helix right now mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. last question heliod is probably just here to stay right we're not Def seeing something like grafter's cage or damping sphere that practically anyone can run to kind of unilaterally try to hate out what heliod is doing yeah it just kind of gets back to what i was getting at before i think which is just like heliod's anti-hate is not specific you know what I mean? Like, it's not like it's running for nature's claim. It's just able to run the same stuff, like either main deck apparitions or sideboard paths or even more apparitions to like be like, oh, you you have a creature that's trying to stop me? Well, bye. Or you have, you know, even if it's like an enchantment or something like that, then you can skyclave apparition it. And it's pretty rough when it's just like the tools that it has to stop what people are doing are just flexible and less targeted than what people have to run to try to stop it. Cool. Yeah, totally agree. Heliod's going to be here for a while unless something major happens where it just can't keep up or someone has a lot of incentives to run anti Heliod cards main without hurting themselves too much. I'm just surprised at how long it's been able to sort of not really be hated out in significant ways. So that's just, it shows the power of the deck. All right. I'm keeping an eye out on some of these new cards and, Maybe other surprises that aren't even really on our radar yet that someone finds that can maybe produce a new combo deck or something totally unexpected otherwise. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we are going to keep ourselves honest and look at some call time cards now that they have been in the formats that we love for three months and talk about what we got right, what we got wrong, and what we got right in the middle. Stay with us. Welcome back to Dive Down 
number one of a double dive down episode, probably. So the, like San mentioned before the break, we are going to take a look at cards from Kaldheim that we talked about in our spoiler episodes, look at the assessments that we gave and kind of talk a little bit about what we might learn from what we got right and what we got wrong. So going to go through a list of cards here. I kind of put them in the order of impact these cards had on the format or kind of the amount that we missed on them in my mind anyway. So with that in mind, the first card I wanted to talk about was Tybalt's Trickery. Mm. Is that a card? And while I think that it's still a card, and I think that we also talked a lot about the potential for this to do combo-y things, you know, this is one of the fastest cards to ever be banned in Modern. And I think that when we were having a discussion about this card, we focused a little bit too much on what are the fair applications for this card that was never supposed to be played fair. And, you know, I talked about what if it was like a fun, interesting thing to do in prowess to double up on spell triggers? What was what if it was, um, you know, weird part of like a bad combo that didn't really go into some of the wild cascade things that we were trying to do? I think that we knew that these problems were here, but we just didn't acknowledge how powerful they could be and didn't spend enough time thinking about that. Dave, I'm, I'm actually more of the opinion. I think we saw the fact that it was a, a combo piece, especially when whenever it was on, he was just like, yeah, this there's like there's no way that this card is designed to to be not a combo piece. But I think we just missed like the right combo. Right. Because I think we were like, yeah, milling on the top of your deck means it's gonna really be hard to stack the deck. And I think we just didn't realize that not having to stack it was like something that we just didn't see that potential, in my opinion, where we were like, I don't think we saw the, the legitimate combo potential there because we just weren't looking hard enough. Yeah. I mean, we knew that there were going to be decks that like had a bunch of lands and Emrakul, but we didn't quite mm-hmm. see how much it was going to be to do this kind of like mid-rangey plan with the card. Yeah, it was going to be good enough. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. This does still see playing historic best of one where it absolutely sucks to play against. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I always love when my when my opponent just like moles down to like three, and then I'm like, oh dear, <laughs> yeah. here it comes. I wonder if this is similar to what I was saying with Niv earlier. If this is a deck that could potentially improve over time as payoffs get better, where maybe you don't have to like put ultimatums in your deck. Maybe you can put like you know a forty forty simic creature that is the size of your library or other things, future cards altogether. Though at the same time, I also feel like it's interesting and historic that it's kind of safe because it's about that format's about to get all this new one mana interaction, including hand disruption and counter magic that mm-hmm. can help keep this in check, whether you're on the play or at the draw. Yeah, potentially. But I think if we were going to take one lesson away from this, it would be that when we see something that's a combo enabler, even though we're not combo players, we should try to keep it, keep some of the discussion or have a deeper discussion about those aspects of the card instead of just going, yeah, it's going to do this. But let's talk about other things that we think are interesting with it. Um, I think we should try to challenge ourselves to like try to nail it down a little bit more on stuff like this so that we at least kind of have the discussion in the right space. Yeah, I tried to write lessons learned for each of these cards, and for, for Tybalt's trickery is don't underestimate cheap combo enablers that let you play other spells for free. Yeah, perfect. All right, next card on the list was Valky slash Tybalt itself. And I think that we underrated this card because it turned out it was so good that it led to a rule change across all of magic because of how much it was breaking, uh, how much it was breaking modern, honestly. You know, the card is still doing work in Pioneer via Bring to Light. We just talked about it being in Niv and Modern again via Bring to Light. You know, it's good enough to pop out, pop up occasionally as a fair card in Historic. Um, Cheating it in on turn two broke the game, even with what looked like kind of 
middling abilities at first. It turns out that just the pure card advantage of it was really, really good. And um, I don't think that we could say that we address the card correctly, although we definitely acknowledge that it could see play as a fair card as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I just think we, we, I think we just missed how easy it was to get out again. Like, I think it was just like one of those things where like, yeah, this, this is a really expensive card and does really cool things. And it's probably pretty cool. And even Valky, the Valky side is, or the yeah Valky side was pretty interesting. We thought, but it's I think only it kind of like, fine though. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's very average. Um, if that, uh, I think the best the best thing Valky did in the early builds was give you a target for the Cascade spell that required a target um, when you had two in your hand. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, I think it's just we didn't appreciate how easy it would be to incorporate in the decks. I think, and it's just so constantly easy to overlook how impactful card advantage is because what the Planeswalker side ultimately did is say you're drawing three cards every turn. And that's really what runs away with the games. Like, sure, you have a removal spell tacked onto it, but it's just how many cards you're able to accrue so quickly and so early in the game that is what made that card so popular or powerful. And I think that's kind of the lesson to to stick with, which is a repeatable engine to draw extra cards as early as turn two can be good. Recognize. Yeah. All right, next card. Vornklex, Monstrous Raider, right, is the, uh, is the full title of our friend. This is a card that I think we actually overrated ultimately when I when I look at it. So I kind of thought the card was nothing the first time that I saw it. I was like, this is just EDH fodder. Then I thought it was totally wild, like totally broken after a week or so in the format. And now it seems to have just disappeared from our formats for the most part. And what happened? You know, I, I was really hot on it after playing with it a few times, but then those decks I just haven't gone back to. I haven't seen them in historic. It hasn't popped up in modern or anything like that really at all. Is six mana just too much, even for a card that is this powerful? I mean, it's a big threat. Yeah. Is it the mana, or is it just the place that the metagame is right now that this card just doesn't have a, a home that is competitive? Yeah, I think that's that's really what I think, Dave, is like, this is a card that needs a shell, and that's why it still does work in like Mono Green Walkers, in Pioneer, which is still a legitimate deck. It's it's kind of like tier two, tier three now. Um, while some other decks have have cre- crept up as the format seeing more play, uh, but yeah, it's like you can't. This is not just a card you can play by its lonesome. It really wants to be surrounded by, I think, planeswalkers especially. That's although okay. So that gets to what makes this card good, I think, because mono green walkers in theory, like, wouldn't it just run this if it was six mana, six six trample haste as well, and it didn't have all that. Counters text? No, because no. you'd run Gargaroth over it for sure. Yeah. You know what I mean? For like a big, big green dumb card. Yeah, there's better threats, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to me, this still kind of just reads like a good standard card. And the reason it was really a big splash in that for- format early on was because of the interaction between opponents' sagas and this card, where it mm-hmm. basically just negated whatever sagas opponents were playing, which were frequently some of the best interactive spells that you could run. Um, and I think it's in that type of environment where this card really shines, where it's not just making your Planeswalker stronger, but it's really making your opponent's cards worse. And I think that's one of the reasons why we haven't really seen it like do more work in other formats, uh, or really the formats that we play most often, is because it's not punishing the type of stuff that opponents are really doing as profoundly. And there's other big threats, like you said, at six mana. Yeah, but I think the lesson from this one is right card, wrong time. 
sort of like it's a card that's good enough to i am i i still feel like it's a card that's good enough to be in a deck especially in historic or pioneer there's just that deck is not good right now and it's For and sure. the counterplay with it like you said too is not good like if there was a lot of planeswalker control decks out there this card is also good it, against that you don't just need your opponent to be playing sagas anything that gets counters on it mm-hmm. so um but we'll see doesn't make enough value on its own i guess is the way i would think about it yeah entirely that's entirely true yeah doomscar next card overrated i feel like we overrated it a little bit as it turned out a little bit yeah. a little bit because i think that what it is is that white just does not need that many wraths and we've reached kind of like saturation in the in all the formats that we care about much earlier not earlier but just like how good can a wrath be you know like for the most part you still see wrath of god as people's a line in historic this isn't close good enough to to get there in modern and wrath's not even that good in modern and in pioneer you have supreme verdict which is just better because it can't be countered and it has more utility in that sense so i feel like what happens is you're gonna have people who want wrath of god and then sometimes they won't settle the wreckage because the instant speed aspect of settle is sometimes and exile is sometimes helpful. And then other than that, you're kind of like, I don't really need these other cards. Now, doesn't mean I never see it. I think it's fine. Like you see it, it feels like it's maybe a two-ish of sometimes in blue-white in in historic. You'll see them uh foretell a card and then you wonder what it is. But And you don't know. Yeah. Until it's too late. Yeah, I mean the the foretell nature is is going to be interesting because I don't really think that we're going to see like a lot of future foretell cards. Do you know what I mean? Like I yeah. think it's something that could be brought back like 5 years from now, right? Yeah, right. So it's like foretell you you don't have that sort of concentration of foretell cards where it's like, well, what's my opponent going to do? I don't really even know. And like sometimes it doesn't even matter or it's like, oh, well they foretell they foretold um the scry to draw to or whatever right and it's right. like well i don't really care like like they're, they're gonna wrath me another way like sometimes if they can sort of just put a a wrath on layaway for when they need it is super scary where it's like okay well turn two i wasn't i was i had what maybe i had a, a burning tree emissary and a bowmat courier and they were like, well, I don't really care. I'm just going to put this this Wrath on Layaway on turn two. And then like, as soon as you overcommit to the board, you're gone. And it's like, then I'm going to Wrath of God you on four. And then I'm also going to Wrath you and play a Narset on turn six or something like that. Yeah. So, I mean, there there are some tempo advantages, but I agree with you, Dave, which is just like, I mean, I don't really think we were incredibly high on it. I think the com- broader Magic community was really high. But I think that was also just high on the fact that they were comparing it to other Wraths. And like you said, the the power level of Wrath is dependent on the meta. And I think that it's strong in historic, but not very strong in modern right now, specifically, right? Like, I don't think there's a lot of Wrath of God or Supreme Verdicts running around, so. Although recently there has been, the, the tournaments that we just went over had some of the first decks, I feel like, that have had Supreme Verdict main in a while, but it was interesting to see that. Lesson learned, not all mana discounts equal card upgrades. I mean, I think that's an interesting way to think about this, Dan, which is just kind of like, is it really that great to spend turn two and turn three to set yourselves up for for a wrath? wrath? Like, how many decks do you have to do that against where you're not better off just foretelling Behold the Multiverse instead Mm -hmm. of setting yourself up for cheap card draw and double spell later on? Yeah. 
Anytime my opponent foretells a card on turn two, I'm living in constant fear of Doomscar. And then I'm just like, well, guess I can't cast any creatures now. And then but I should lose. you be? That's the question is like how much, right? I mean, I guess you play elves a lot. And so, yeah, it's, it's problematic there, but. Next card. Yep. In search of greatness. Yeah. We mm-hmm. called this card as like the one we're most excited to play with. <laughs> if you recall. Hold on, who? Which I did. You? Dave and I, yeah. It was like our last spoiler app, and and we were just doing a little closing. Cl- oh, trust! Oh, trust! I went back to look to look at what I said about this card. Yeah, so. I can tell. Well, Shane has a grin on his face, like he's like you, <laughs> you idiots. I was so right at the time, and he was. I mean, here's the thing: card doesn't do anything the turn it comes into play. I have to constantly remind myself for these things that have splashy splashy things that you have to it hits a really high bar in order to make that a good card and so you know it's a whisker difference between this and like you know you think about aether vial which is also a card that doesn't do anything when it comes into play but it's one mana it helps you cheat on mana this is two mana it's much more unreliable in cheating you on mana and so it just turns out it wasn't good it's not good it's bad jerry yeah i mean besides not doing anything when it comes into play it's just sort of like it's inconsistent in the decks where you can play it. And uh, yeah, I mean, like my take was like, it's like, it just reads like a eye poppingly good card. And then like, then you're like, okay, well maybe it's just okay. And then like, maybe it's actually bad. And I think it's kind of ended up being kind of bad, which is sad. Like I, this is the first card I tested. Like I crafted mm. four of these day one Ooh. and was playing like historic mono green walkers and stuff like that and it just like it never did what i wanted to do and it was like well it's kind of what i expected but it sucks i will say what i always say about bad cards that i want to defend but it scries you a card (laughs) thanks all right lesson learned dave and stan should stay in their lane instead of getting pumped about green cards (laughs) non-elf green cards all right, next card on the list that we had to talk about is Redain Valkmira, which is a card that I'm not even sure that we really talked about Redain that much at, or at all. But I do think that we underrated it a little bit because I think it turned out to be just better than everybody thought it would be, especially in Historic, because it had a line of text that turned out to be not important and a whole lot of other lines of text that were. We did talk about this on the spoiler app and... I hate I hate having to say this, but Shane got it right. What did he say? Well, what I said something about this card. Yeah, you were like, this card's not bad, and it's not because of the snow text. It's because of everything else, and that yeah, and that's that basically like exactly how it panned out. Where <laughs> this card's not bad, and it flies, and it has vigilance. I will say this card has been resolved about me. I think one time in three months. Yeah, I've seen it in the you know, constantly evolving uh, Bant or Selesnya Angels deck in Historic, at least. Yeah, I mean, I think this is just an available piece of like flying tax, flying tax of tax tech that is helpful. And the one side helps tax the spells and the other side helps tax the damage. Turns out to be useful in both cases. And um, I just think it's a reasonable card that we just kind of took a pass on. You know, what was weird about this card is that it was sold to us or overhyped by Wizards Marketing when this card is spoiled and they're basically like your opponents are going to think twice about playing Snowlands because of this card when it's in fact the worst part of the card <laughs> everything else just is so much more relevant than the way it occasionally interacts with snow mana yeah I've, I've never had i've been playing a decent amount of the very average mono red 
snow historic deck and i've i've never once even thought about oh man i hope they don't play redain against me because it's never happened i mean i certainly want to wouldn't want it to be played against me against my pet deck which i'm going to talk about next but oh please um hey lesson learned lesson with learned. redain don't let wizards marketing department tell you how to cast your spells yeah i mean i to put a finer point on that i, I like your pithy headline there stan <laughs> but i think the thing is you have to not be distracted by things that look like parasitic mechanics that are on a card that turn out to just be like trinket text, right? Like you said, the snow, the snow mana thing turns out to be pretty throwaway, but there was a lot of other text on this card that we could have just paid attention to. And we didn't. It's like an insurance policy, right? Where it's like this, this can always be around if snow's too good. Right. But there's also some other stuff. Right. That also makes it an actual card. This is a card. Okay. This is a card, guys. <laughs> it's my favorite moment of called- last week's episode when Shane was talking about the book, the library monster card or whatever. And he's like, this is a card. Okay. <laughs> so good. All right. Next card. Uh, Ascendant Spirit. So when I was making like a list of the cards that I rated here, I think this is the only card that I put on this list that I think I rated correctly. Everything else I was like either overshot or undershot. But this card... Sees no play in modern, but I've been playing it a lot in mono blue spirits in historic, and I still think it's a very good one mana one mana value threat. I think it helps that whole deck be more comfortable with moving away from having that pirate sub theme that mm-hmm. Siren Storm Tamer brought to the old mono blue tempo decks. And it's it's better in that shell than in the original tempo shells I was trying. You know, once you move into like having rattle chains being good and having Supreme uh, Phantom and all those kind of things, I think that deck is like a reasonable deck, and this card is actually important in it. Totally agree. I do surprisingly well with mono blue in historic, and I love casting this card in that deck specifically. Yeah, I kind of think it might even be pioneer playable if that was still a format. We'll have to but. see, right? I mean, Spirits is quite good in, in Pioneer, so the question would be if you could, if you would or could find a way to play, have this card fit in there. Um, but it's a fun well, deck, so- fun card. You just keep playing Mono Blue Devotion. It's it's a fun deck. It's probably not good. Hey, I, I have like a 70% win rate with Mono no, Blue I meant, Spirits. I meant, I meant in uh, Mono oh, Blue Devotion and in Pioneer. Pioneer, yeah. Lesson learned, blue cards can be good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mickey is telling us in the chat right now that Spirits isn't good anymore in Pioneer. I'm sorry to hear that. I mostly meant it has a lot of options of cards that might be better than this one, but yes. You know you know what the actual lesson is? That one mana threats that have instant speed mana sinks that make that threat stronger and get you up on cards can be good. Can be good, and especially when you ca- can cast it with Flash, which is also helpful. Well, you can't of, Flash uh, this one. In. Uh, off Rattle Chains, my friend. Oh, yeah. That's a historic card, I guess. Yep. It's in Jumpstart. God. Okay. I'll take your word for it. All right. Next. Birgi. Birgi, 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 Birgi. <laughs> I thought we were going to have some fun. We'll see. Maybe we'll still have fun with this card. Cost three days. Cost three. Maybe there'll be something going on with Gr- Grinning Ignis coming to you live. Oh, yeah. That's a With Strixhaven. I don't know three, but three mana is too much for this kind of thing. I think ultimately because you just got to be doing other stuff on turn three. You need these cards that that give you the mana back. I think to cost two. Yeah. It's just, I mean, like my, my general thought was like, it's just going to be too expensive for like your reds, even red halfway fair strategies where it's like, I just want to untap and go off. Where it's just like, yeah, it's slow. Um, but I do agree, Dave. I think that Birgi's real home are 
are fully broken strategies, fully unfair things. Uh, and I think we're going to see more of those perhaps. I think there's a lot of enablers in, in Strixhaven that we haven't even really begun to see uh, how they play out. Okay. More beyond Grinny, Grinny Ignis? I think that's a big one. But I mean, we, we see so many ways of like, you get this spell back and like you have this cost reduction. You can be able to cast this for free or it's like, you know, it's just it, there's a lot of interesting things in the red sphere that I think will will be a thing. Whether or not it's a good thing, we'll see. Combo cards can be hard to evaluate, though. I mean, cost reduction or mana rebates are always flashy. And so you, you got to be careful with them is the lesson, I would say, on this card. Yeah, I mean, as as Brian Gottlieb always says, if it's free, it's me. But unfortunately, Bergie herself is not free enough. I hate that expression. It rhymes, but it makes no sense. Well, no, it means I like it if it's for, if it's free. Why wouldn't you just say, if it's free, it's for me? And then it would make a whole lot more sense. Well, man. It sounds to me like Brian doesn't know his value. All right, I'm, calling, on Brian I'm calling Brian right now. I, You guys know we go way back. I'll be back in a minute. Okay. He actually, he has no idea who I am. He's never, never heard of me. All right, here's here's some cards I'm excited to talk about. Are you really? Yeah, I cast this card. Just yeah, I mean, excited to cast it though. This this is my contention. This is my question for you, Stan. How I feel like you to cast. I feel like you haven't played against elves enough. If you don't think that these they're okay with casting this card, and that card is Jaspera Sentinel. Oh, I've been pronouncing it very differently. Have you been pronouncing it Jaspera Sentinel? Jaspera. Is it Sentinel? Sentinel. <laughs> That's the Midwestern way of pronouncing it. Albany expression. Yeah, Jaspera Sentinel. It's the it's the weird mana dork. You know, here's what I'll say about this about this card. Um, I was kind of into it, and then I I pitched it to Spike, and I was like, it it does this birch lore, birchwood lore. Birchman, that legacy vintage, that vintage elves card. Are you talking about Wirewood Symbiote? No, no, no. Well, this is really going places. Yeah, Stan. what are you talking about? I just, I'm just thinking about uh, the drum from Affinity. What was that card called? Oh, Springleaf Drum. Springleaf Drum. Yeah. Well, it's come spring- on, Stan. Stan, does this? I have to ask. Does this see any legitimate play besides the historic? elves deck uh no not really and and the card i was looking for was birchler rangers and i feel there like it's just doing an impression of birchler rangers and the reason it works in historic and it works fairly well for now is because that is a deck that wants a critical mass of one drops to cast on turn two after you have an elvish Warmaster out now as soon as elvish mystic enters the format if that ever happens i think this card's coming out yeah, poof. But it's, but it's just the best redundant piece to Llanowar Elves, basically, right? It's kind of what it is. Like, we needed an eight. We needed eight elves. We're not necessarily playing four of these. Like, I'm just on... I went from four to none, and then I settled on two. And it's really just because I, I just want the occasional extra one drop. Since what this doesn't do is it doesn't let you play three drops on turn two, which is actually what Elves wants more than anything. But it does let you spend three mana on turn two which is sometimes good with a war master. Got it. That, I mean, that makes a ton of sense to me. So I, all I'll say is I think I rated it kind of appropriately and it was spike who poo pooed it on our show. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, spike, you remember that spike doesn't really care about historic. True. So like his perspective is, is modern and I, I don't think it made elves a better modern deck. No, but I, I do think it helps. I've seen a lot of more consistent openings from elves because of this card 
not being on the receiving end of elves. It's just been helpful to have it there, I think. And speaking of elves, we got more elves because right. there were some other cards here. So uh, Elvish Warmaster was a card that I tried to sell to Stan that I think Stan was like, no. Why don't you talk about it, though? Yeah, I mean, speaking of cards that actually did make an impact on modern elves, it was Warmaster and Realmwalker. Yeah, man, Warmaster War is surprisingly annoying to face down. Like, it's like the problem with elves when I see it and on historic, at least is like, there's so many threats where I'm like, well, I got to remove that one. Well, I got to remove that one. I got to remove that one. Cause it's like either providing too much ramp or too much power to the board or too much uh, token creation. And it's just like, uh, just, uh, the war master just adds to that pile. Hallmark of a good deck. A lot of must remove spells. Stan, I got a present for you here for paper. Is that foil? It's a foily war master. I don't want your foil it's just cards, like you, Dave. Bro. You can just have them. You don't have to. Tr- I'm not trying to trade it. You I can mean, just sure, put I'll it, take put it, it in free. a frame. I'll, I'll take it for free. I'll put it in my commander deck. I will say, I think we underestimated Warmaster a little bit. Um, I think we actually rated Realmwalker mostly correctly. And a lot of people anticipated that Realmwalker would just end up being an elves card. And that's exactly what basically happened. Though I think at first, at least I didn't fully appreciate how impactful Warmaster could be. And just how many tokens it can generate. It's a lot. That's really yes. what's super so, annoying. So good about it. And that you can occasionally do that at instant speed. If you have an imperious perfect or a Coco or Elvish clan caller and six mana, it's the worst. It's the literal worst. All the different ways that it can happen on your turn and their turn that they can get tokens. And then why not? Why not also provide pump when you have like yes. the ability to make a quadrillion mana with all your elves and the elf mana production cards? And it's like, well, I'm pumping my whole team. Cool. And giving them death touch. Oh, no. Lesson learned. Turns out flooding the board with a ton of tokens can be good. Also, future sight on a stick can be good. And also, one mana dorks can occasionally see play in the absence of Elvish Mystic. This has been Elves 201. Thank you for attending. Let me talk about the next card. Let me talk about it, okay? Have you cast this card? Behold them. I don't need to cast it because I was so right about it, even though I don't cast these cards. Okay, Behold the Multiverse. That is the Foretell uh, Scry 2, Draw 2. Uh, costs 4, cast naturally, but you can lay away for 2 and untap and then cast it for 1 in the blue, correct? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good card. It's 2 cards. Oh, 2. Yeah. What's 2, Stan? It's either one of the two that you've scried to the top or some unexpected cards because you scried something else to the bottom. Yeah, I mean, this is just a good card because it's just like like Dave, I think, hinted at earlier is that sometimes layaway can be good, which is just like, you know, this this does do exactly what I think at least I was kind of getting at, um, which is the idea that on turn four lets you double spell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's super important is that the tempo advantage you gain from foretelling this is very advantageous. Yeah, it's kind of like a build your... It it enables a build your own cryptic command in formats that don't have cryptic commands. If if you're able to do like sensor or something else on with two mana and then you have an additional two mana for this, wow, wow, wow. Yeah, I mean, the wildest thing to me is that this has popped up occasionally in modern as a one-of which I think is like fine in some cases as well, just to be able to have something to put on layaway on turn two when you have it against the right decks where you can take that turn off. Now it's real hard to take off a turn in modern. 
as we all know. But if you're backing yeah. it up with force negation or, or you don't have anything else to do with your mana on turn two, then I think it's okay. But it, I was surprised to see it even show up there occasionally in lists as part of your like fun of card advantage package, uh, you know, the flavor to taste area of control decks. I mean, it's always surprising to see Glimmer of Genius get cast, but every once in a while you're like, wow, I guess I'm just going for it. I guess it's better. fine. Yeah, and this is, you're right, and this is better. That's the main thing. Okay, next you know card. How, uh, oh, all I'll say about this card, every time I'm like nervous that my opponent foretells something on turn two and I think it's a Doomscar, it's just always this. Right, instead yeah that's because i think they only run like one or two doomstars like they're not running a ton of them they're not running like the full play set where you're like every time it's gonna be that but it does help it does help with the, the bluffing potential and we did identify that like network of two mana foretell cards mm-hmm. between this and saw it coming and doomscar i think that i see the saw it coming versus behold a multiverse package a little bit more often in historic than than like doomscar being in there as well um but still seems okay so we i think i underrated this card a little bit shane a little bit yeah that's fine all right let's next card i'm just gonna say we had a long discussion where i was like there's got to be a good boast card i think it's dragon berserker that card's not good let's just go on <laughs> fine yeah and then even dave can be wrong <laughs> i'm wrong i'm wrong a lot by the way apparently the, the lesson learned from this if you believe the the last 20 minutes of this podcast is Shane is right about spoilers quite often, which I'm not like fully emotionally ready to, know, to say out loud. I know. But uh, here we are. Think, think, think good, play bad. Yeah, that's right. Last card I have on the list, and I'm open to other submissions after this, though. The last one is Faceless Haven, which is a card that we just didn't talk about enough, I think. Oh, yeah, we missed it. And I don't know if we I think talked about it at all. I don't think we talked about it at all either. We talked about it shortly after the spoiler episodes, but in historic and monocolor aggressive decks, this is a good card. This card has the ability to give you insurance against control decks. It lets you hit hard if you need to suddenly out of nowhere. Uh, I think it's just a really, really good card on rate, especially in a format that does not have access to Mutavault, which Pioneer and Modern both do. So this card doesn't rate there. But for historic, this is good. And it has like weird Mutavault like characteristics. Every once in a while, you're like, "Oh yeah, this is a knight, and it's a and it's a rogue." Oh yeah, it's a spirit. <laughs> it's just like that matters every once in a while. Sure, it's all creature types, just because. So I love this card. I like having it. You can't run a lot of them. Like the decks that I've been playing no. it, I, you know, I crafted four. I tried to jam four into the mono blue deck. You could really can only fit like two, but they're nice to have around when you when you when you have them. I feel like this might low-key be the best card for Eternal formats in this set. Unfortunately, it depends on what you find as Eternal. Yeah, I think it it's one of the best for Historic, I think. Sure. But I, I don't think this is going to really ever see play in in Modern or Pioneer, unless we're going to do some like wild, lots of land attackers, colorless decks somehow. You know. Okay, agreed, but I'll add that most of the cards we're talking about didn't really see modern play. Like yeah. this is kind of like a, a a historical dive down, if you ask me. I mean, this is where we are, though. Unfortunately, with it, not unfortunately, probably fortunately. You know, with um, right now where they are in the kind of set power level assignment. Mm-hmm. Like we're on a downswing from things like Eldraine and theros and icoria and now we're here where they're kind of like oh we did too much and now modern is going is staying resilient and staying like what it is and so we we do have less cards to talk about from call time in in a modern context than we 
would have a year ago for the sets that came out a year ago, for sure. I mean, I, I guess I, I am happy, though, that we do have a a popular, easy-to-play format in Historic that does see ongoing shakeups with cards like this, right? And also, like, it gives us an opportunity to be like, yeah, we can miss about cards like this, even if it's not, like, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to say during a spoiler episode, like, you kind of want to have a take now and then, right? Which is like, if we were only talking about modern and we had these cards to, to talk about, we'd be like, maybe Bergy does something in some kind of new Storm-like deck. And it's like, well, it's, it's easy to be wrong, right? I think what's cool about this is Faceless Haven gives us an opportunity to say, yeah, this card can be in those aggressive monocolored decks that we see in Historic or make all new kind of snow archetypes exist. And we still can miss it. Because like it's a newer format for us, and we're like we're thinking about a different type of power level than we've had to think about in the past. And yeah, I think it's cool that a card like this can be pretty darn solid in a few decks in historic, but probably just never see, never sniff other formats. Probably so it's fine. Yeah, lands that can be threats. <laughs> Who knew? Especially in a format that has a paucity of those. Right? There's always good yeah. land land creature cards. And And it's efficient. They all have them. Like Modern has a a ton of them. Pioneer has a much smaller selection that I think might only be Mutavolt when I really, really think about it. I'm trying to remember if there's anything else. And then, oh, I guess you have all the weird ones that are like... Like Crawling Barons. Yeah, all that kind of stuff that comes up as well. And then you have this one, which is kind of like um, Historic's, like you said, best one, probably. Anybody else have any cards that they would put on the list? This was kind of what I gleaned. Uh, I didn't have time to get in the notes, but Goldspan Dragon. Mm. I think Goldspan Dragon was an interesting one we talked about. I mean, I did go back to and, and and checked ourselves, and we weren't overly high on it. And I think we did we did our due diligence in saying, "Hey, here's the potential for this type of card." Yeah, I mean, I think that the thing is, we identified a card that was really powerful for standard. <laughs> there yeah. is how it turned out. Like that card is really good in standard. Uh, as at different points in time now. Um, I don't know if it's good in standard this week, but I think that it was at that level and it's maybe just not enough to be good in, in our formats right, right now. I will say this. I'm impressed how quickly we got through this section because we've got plenty of time to talk about is it Phoenix and maybe just maybe a couple other decks and maybe just maybe after that, even a question or two. Yeah. I was driving. We're going. You're, you're like George Costanza. You always make great time. <laughs> Am I the Costanza? Am I the Costanza of this podcast? Is that oh, true? Definitely. I'm Larry David. Okay. <laughs> One way okay. to look at it. All right. We don't need to take a break. Let's let's do. A, Why don't we take a break? You want to take a break? All right. I'll go get a glass of water then. So for this special episode where we're doing a bit of a grab bag, we are going to do a second dive down essentially right now, or main segment, I guess you would call it, of stuff we're excited to play with this week now that Strixhaven is out. And, um, you know, I think there's a lot of different things that we could pick from to talk about, but there is one thing that is kind of looming large over the formats that we care about based off of Strixhaven, and that is, of course... Is in is it Phoenix gonna be a real deck in historic or not? <laughs> Inquiring minds named Dave and Stan want to know. 
I think it depends on your definition of a real deck because I can guarantee you it's going to see a lot of play win, lose, or draw, especially on Thursday when the new set goes live. Immediately, people are going to be all over it. Like, this is this is the first thing I'm spending my wilds on, and that's just because I know from hearing the internet, I have a little thing in my ear that tells me what people are tweeting about at all times. It's all everyone's talking about. Are the birds back in town? It seems to be, yeah, huge as far as discussion goes. And you knew we would come back to it because, of course, our first episode is an episode about playing Is It Phoenix and also self-mill. Colin, you you both ever think about how that episode's like an hour, 20 minutes long? Yeah, yeah, I think about it all the time. It is? I don't even remember that. Yeah, it's it's really short. (laughs) I don't know how we pulled that off. I, I don't know. Someday we'll get back to hour-long episodes. Maybe. Someday. We'll see. But I doubt it. Okay. The most interesting thing to me about Is It Phoenix right now is not so much the fact that people are kind of treating it as if it's a foregone conclusion that it's going to be back. Uh, I don't think people are treating it as a foregone conclusion that it's going to be good. Mm-hmm. But I do think that there's a lot of debate around a couple of really interesting things in the deck itself that I kind of wanted to talk with Stan about because we haven't had a chance to talk about it, get Shane's impressions about several different like decision points that are presented in the deck right now. Mm-hmm. And so here we are. Well, I've been talking with people in the Slack about it. I've been reading people's articles. Everybody's written an article about it. I've drawn not heavily, but like I looked, I refer to Jerry T's list from Star City Games last week quite a few times. I just want to say welcome back, bird friends. We've been waiting for you. All right. So the first thing I think we have to start about when we think about a deck like this is, of course, the lands really quickly. Hmm. One thing I was curious about, Stan, is when you think about building a deck like this, the one thing that I've noticed a lot is that nobody is playing check lands in any of the lists that I've seen right now. They're all saying that they're going to go for steam vents, for blue red pathway, for spire bluff canals, and between seven and nine basics. We're basically between 18 and 21 lands. What do you think about that mindset? I think you can play at least one sulfur falls, if not two, because when you have four steam vent and you're going to have like at least six to seven basics that sulfur falls is almost always going to be volcanic island yeah i mean it worries me a little bit in the sense of having eight other non-island mountain lands in the pathways and spire bluff canals which is part of the reason that i'm kind of like okay with skipping those although i i could see throwing one in just to help you out occasionally Mm -hmm. i mean you got to keep in mind this deck is so full of cantrips that if you have enough lands in here and you have a decent opener, you're going to always be drawing into lands. Mm-hmm. So I think that's kind of your sulfur falls insurance as well. Like that's interesting. You're, you're going to be flush with lands. You're going to occasionally be just discarding them to faithless. Yeah. Do you, do you favor a more or less land approach on a deck that has a lot of cantrips? Like, do you, uh, do you like the 21 or you like 18? I actually have grown. I'm at a point in my life now. I'm a little older that I add lands. I'm I'm always adding one land to almost any deck I get from the internet. Like yeah. almost always so every, greedy. Every 21 land deck that I play is 22. Uh mm. my elves deck has uh one or two more lands than most of the decks I see online. Um I'm so many red decks shave on lands way too aggressively when you're trying to cast like four drops like you need to untap like you need you need to cast your three drop on three and they're playing like 20 lands and it's like nope Mm -hmm. 
And and part of that for me is that if you want to shave lands, do it post board. That's what I'm. That's where I'm at. Like I'm just going to put in an extra land main. Always have my lands when I need them. And then if I feel like I'm on the draw, or if I feel like I need to play low to the ground for whatever reason, like maybe I'll cut a land. Yeah, I do agree with some folks in chat though, which is like Turbo Xerox style decks typically can shave on lands because you do want to keep hitting gas and you're going to see like hopefully half your deck. But yeah, I do agree that frequently people do try to skimp more often than they should. But also these cantrips dig deep, right? Like faithless digs, digs a couple. Like if we were playing all things that only gave you a look at like the top card and you're like, do you want this or not? Like if we were playing tw- 10 ops, in this deck, it would be like, okay, maybe I will shave lands a little bit to try to make sure I get into gas. But if you get to look at multiple cards, you can often send the lands away. So it makes me makes me feel like I favor the slightly heavier lands to start out with on these decks as well. Great. All right, starting from the ground up, the lands are the scaffolding. I'm glad we talked about it a little bit. Um, it is sad for me to see the check lands kind of like move their way out a little bit because I felt like they were pretty powerful at certain points in time. But they are just, to me, they're just really rough when you have pathways, which I think are better. So. Yep. I think people are just slowly realizing pathways rule. Yeah. Pathways are super good. Yep. Okay. Next core. So if you look at the way that the Phoenix deck, next area of questions I have, Mm -hmm. the core of the Phoenix deck, right? Is basically how are we going to draw cards and get Phoenixes into the graveyard? And then what are our threats? Right. Mm -hmm. The true core within that core of every build that I've seen right now and I don't think there's a lot of debate around this, is for Faithless, for Brainstorm, for Opt, for Phoenix. Okay? 100% agree with you. Right. I was thinking about the core of this deck before I even saw these notes you wrote. And in my mind, it's like we just copied and pasted one another. Like right. This is, I think, at least at first, going to be what every Faithless looting, or every Phoenix deck looks like at its core. I'm, I'm truly dreading the number of decision points that I'm going to have to see brand new like Phoenix players and brand new brainstormers, including myself and people playing like there's just faithless looting. What do I discard brainstorm? What do I put back on top? And And in in what what order? order? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's just like, there's just going to be a lot of stuff. I mean, I think there will be some auto decisions, but not a lot. And that's what people like about this deck. And I appreciate that, but woof. Here's all I'm going to say about that. I've given that some thought as well. And I think the arena interface is going to make those decision points not take as long as I think some people fear. Yeah. Yeah. I prefer that you were right rather than me in this case, my friend. (laughs) So let's say theoretically that we chose to make a 20 land build of Phoenix from our discussion earlier, and we're going to play these 16 cards that I just outlined for sure. Not really worth discussing them because we know how good they are. We know how good faithless is brainstorm, all that opt opt is the one that i'm a little bit kind of like well you just have to play opt yeah and that's the one that like i feel like could one day get cut too you would need some more powerful something more powerful at one mana because that's the real reason that opt is there right right but at any rate what that leaves left is 24 slots for us to look at in the main deck and i think that's where the interesting stuff is kind of going on Mm -hmm. so the, the first thing i wanted to talk about as far as this goes is the secondary spell suite within these Phoenix decks classically and even in pioneer and things like that, there's kind of two different card uh, styles that go in this secondary spell suite. And usually it's around um, it's around like 15 additional cards. Like, so it's kind of two thirds of the remain of the 24 cards I talked about are spells 
and one third is kind of like additional threats that supplement Phoenix. So set that aside. The two kinds of spells that you generally have in this deck, interaction and additional draw and filtering, right? Mm -hmm. And so I thought it would be interesting to start talking with the interaction spells really quickly. Basically, from what I've seen, they come down to three different cards. You've got your lightning axe, you've got shock, and you've got pillar of flame. There's usually four to six of these cards total. But I think there's some questions here about like how you split that up, why you split that up, and what you would do with these cards. Yes. So lightning axe only hits creatures. So it's it's a little narrow, and there's certain situations where it might even be dead. But it is in it's a way to discard your phoenixes. So it, the upside is quite high, and it's right. a one mana spell too. So you can even discard a bird and get it back on the same turn um, as early as turn three. Right. Super powerful card against any creature deck because it advances your plan and it takes out a good size threat from them for super cheap. Yeah, I mean, you look at sort of the the pioneer pedigree where if you haven't been paying attention, <laughs> Phoenix is very back in that format. Uh, and they do run a good amount of lightning axe. And I think that I don't think there's a drastic difference between the two formats and how, how like you said last week, Stan, and how they play to the board. So lightning axe, <laughs> still very good card. Agreed. So now we have shock. But, and but how many do we run? Is my uh, question when we look at it. I think it's two, mm. personally, or three. Man, in but this I format, tend to lean back to two. And I can easily see three, like against angels, against gruel, against auras. Like they're suiting, they suit up a, an aura, like two or three auras, and they're like, oh, my my things has got five toughness now. I'm out of the, I'm out of the, out of the, I'm in the clear here. Uh, lightning axe. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm leaning with Shane currently because Historic is such a creature-based format. And I feel like there's really only one-ish deck where it's actually dead, which is control. But even control will sometimes make a shark token. Um, so that's why three might be justifiable, or at least having that third one in the side. I mean, you and it's this is a this is a looting deck. Yeah. Pitch it. Or it doesn't matter. And, and here like this, 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 like, you know, there's there's a Oh man, that stupid beast! You know, there's just so much stuff that, like, like let's say, let's say you, you, there's gonna be a lot of times when you can't swing in because, like, the crackback will kill you in a format like historic. Like, you just, I think you want the interaction. I think it's also worth pointing out that discarding a card to lightning axe is part of the cost, so mm-hmm. you can always count on it to get a phoenix into the graveyard, even if you're trying to use it against something like auras, where they might use a protection spell on their on the creature you're targeting. Stan, are you saying that sometimes discarding cards can be good? It makes me nervous, but if there's a deck to do it, I guess it's this one. But what if right on. what if I wanted that card later? I mean, Dave, you also mentioned uh, Pillar of Flame. Versus right? Shock, I mean, which is yeah. the big yeah, I mean, question because, look, here's the thing that people I don't I like realize. Pillar of Flame does do two damage to any target, okay? Yeah. But it's a sorcery. Sounds like Shock. Right. It sounds like shock, but it's a sorcery. This is like something you have to keep in your mind is that it's a sorcery and shock is not. However, pillar exiles a card. Yeah. In that mirror, which I think is probably like 30% of the metagame for the first two weeks, you're going to want some pillars. Yeah. The big thing about this, though, is that do you run a full play set of pillars or do you mix in shock because of finale of promise, which we'll talk about in a couple of minutes, because you do want to have a mix of instants and sorceries in your deck and so being able to bring back one or either or both to help trigger some stuff uh can can be super helpful in the kind of turn when you're ready to fire off finale 
I think the reason you mix them up is because <clears throat> the sorcery speed is a liability more often than we may be giving it credit for. And that's because even though it is good in the mirror, birds have haste. And sometimes if they have a big turn where they get a bunch of birds out of the graveyard, if if your defenses are totally down, that pillar of flame isn't going to save your life. And I think like sometimes that shock will just will just buy you a turn um, that the pillar of flame might not be able to. Good point. So we're talking about three lava acts here. And then that also means that we, how many of these shock effects do you think you can fit into the deck? I think we got to run the full set because otherwise we would be running for lightning bolt. And I think we we just kind of have to accept that we're just doing a bad lightning bolt impression here and the deck would be running for lightning bolt. So are you two, two pillar shock? Are you all shock? Like, what do you think you would try? I I like two, two. Uh, I might even go up to five and do like three, two of some three shocks, two pillars or vice versa. Just because you want a lot of one mana spells. Like Mm -hmm. your one mana spells are so much more important uh, than your two mana spells. Yeah. And while, and it's an interesting point. So as we transition out of this area, we're kind of the way that we're sketching this up now means that we're in between, um, you know, we're in between seven and eight interactive spells in this, in this uh, secondary spell suite, which means we have like 43 or 44 cards in the main deck by our count. Mm-hmm. And so now we're going to talk about two mana spells. Mm-hmm. And that's not bad. Yeah, that's the problem, right? Is that when you look at the rest of the spells you want to put in this deck, you're you're dealing with a lot of cards that suddenly cost two. And so there's like space for, I think, six, seven-ish cards from this list to be able to help you continue to do two things, draw cards and put birds into your graveyard. They all have different pluses and minuses. The cards we're talking about here generally are strategic planning, chart a course, thrill of possibility, and maybe even see the truth. I don't think I don't think this is a see the truth deck. I mean, hey. Would love to be wrong. To quote Shane, would love to be wrong. The only reason it's on my list, it's in Jerry T's uh, list, first pass at this deck, which I thought was pretty inf- interesting. But you're only getting the draw three if you target it with finale of promise. Totally true. And I don't think that's enough. I'm unsure either. So, okay, let's set see the truth aside then and say, we're not going to run that card. Okay. Cause it seems bad, <laughs> but they all have different pluses and minuses on top of that. Right. So strategic planning helps you put helps you dig deep and put extra cards in the graveyard, but you don't get to choose cards from your hand to put in the graveyard. Thrill of possibility is a uh, instant, but you have to discard first. And then uh, charter course is sort of the inverse of thrill. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The nice thing also about charter course is that it has this like occasional fail case where it's, and it's weird to even call this a fail case where it's just a two mana divination. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's where you're attacking with some other threat and then you just draw. Yeah. Or, or attacking with birds, right? Right. Like you've already gotten your birds out. Maybe you just have the one like that happens sometimes three birds on the bottom of your, on your deck, you swung with swing with one and then you're just drawing extra cards to find other threats. Yeah. I mean, the big thing that's interesting here to me too, is that, you know, we do have faithless looting in this format, but we don't have, is it charm? And so the question is like, you know, yes, we, we do. Good. We have a three mana is a charm called Prismari <clears throat> Command. We're not running any three mana spells in this deck, my friend. But it makes a treasure token. I don't token. think we are. It does make a treasure token. But I mean, hey, if you want to throw that on the table for consideration for this, I'm I'm fine with that too. But I have not seen any proposed lists from anybody that have Prismari Command in the deck. 
Well, that's because you haven't been looking at my lists, David. Because well, I've I mean, been keeping them in my brain. Are you seriously thinking about that, though? It seems too slow to me, to be honest. You know, the fact that it's an instant and the fact that it like is occasionally going to destroy a graph digger's cage as well, because the fourth mode is destroy target artifact. I think this is a, a card worth looking at. Maybe it's a sideboard yeah. card, but I don't know. Like, I like it more than see the truth. If, if yeah. we're just going to stack those two cards against each other. I think that's fair. Do you like it better than thrill of possibility? Is does thrill even see play in like the pioneer versions it, any longer? It doesn't, but, th- but that's because pioneer has, is it charm and we don't. And so trying yeah. to figure out like what that balance between instance and sorceries is at different casting costs, I think is like part of what's going on here. And I think that thrill is only like a one of the big question here is like, how many strategic plannings do you run versus how many charter courses do you run when you already have access to brainstorm and faithless looting? Because those cards are much lower power level than we ever saw in modern. Yeah. I don't know if we're going to have that answer today. I think that's an answer that you identify playtesting and like figuring out how the deck kind of plays out and how the format even lines up and which ones end up being the most uh, impactful in an average game. But I'm actually just leaning towards strategic planning right now based on my experience with that card in Historic and Pioneer because it lets you look so deep. And and more importantly, it just puts two cards in your graveyard. Yeah. I got to tell you, I'm thinking the same way. I think strategic planning, like if I only had six of these slots to fill, I would go for strategic planning and two charter course. And if I have seven, I would go for strategic planning and three charter course. I really like strategic planning. I think it's a really good card. I also think it pairs well with Brainstorm. Yeah. Just because yeah. you can put you, you could put some birds if, if you don't have any other discard outlets, you can put birds from your hand on top of your library and then strategic planting them into the yard. That's great. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's super good synergy. Yeah, I mean it's interesting. We talked a little bit about um the other secondary card that Pioneer has that of course Historic does not have is is uh Treasure Cruise, which is like a hugely powerful card that would was never in the modern deck, won't be in the historic deck, but is in Pioneer somehow. Um so maybe that's their brainstorm. But it's part of the reason this working out this spell suite, I think it's kind of hard uh, for historic. So, okay. So Stan and I, our recommendations are strategic planning and charter course. Forget about the cute stuff. How many slots do we have left? So I think we have between, I would say eight, nine slots left from the list that we've been kind of like back of the napkinning right now. You know what I think? We actually have six because two of those slots have to be Finale of Promise. I actually think, so a lot of lists I've seen have been three. Yeah, and sorry, I did miscount. So I think we still have eight in our mental model. I, I counted um, Finale in our in our stuff. So, but you're right. Ooh. We need we need two Finales. Minimum. I've seen a lot of lists with three Finale of Promise. Um, I think this card is super important here, right? So Finale of Promise is the one that you want to have a sorcery and an instant in your graveyard. Right. Correct. Right. Yeah. And then you want them to be cheap. So that's, I mean, this is kind of like part and parcel of the whole deck. Yeah. And yes. guess what goes really good with that? Hmm. Uh, turn three finale of promise for brainstorm and faithless looting. Yeah. Why not? Sounds okay. It's three spells. <laughs> you get to put, put birds in the yard, uh, yeah. draw some stuff. You get to like, look at the top of your deck, then draw them off a of face, then draw extra things off a of face, faithless looting, and then um, put birds in the yard and then have them trigger all off of a single cast of finale I promise. 
Should we talk really quick about how to sequence this on Arena so you get to resolve the brainstorm first? Because you, you, I think you always want to resolve brainstorm first. I agree. But I, I think it, this is going to be the type of thing that people are going to get frustrated over. They're just going to like order the cards incorrectly yeah. maybe their first time doing this. And I think the thing you have to kind of keep in mind is it's the way the stack works is it's first one in is the last one out. So if you're choosing which order to cast cards in, the first one you click is the second one you're actually going to cast. Right. I mean, it's the same way on Moto, but it's a good point right. to like keep that in mind. Yeah. Um, okay, so why why do you think we always cast Brainstorm first? Because it's going to allow you to manipulate the top of your deck and potentially let you make better Faithless Looting decisions. Right? It, I'm, I'm sure it probably boils down to some version of you have the most information that way, but... I guess you have the most information about what ends up getting into the graveyard that way. Mm-hmm. That makes sense to me. That was what, what my instinct was. I was trying to think really quickly if there was a reason to just do your draw to first to just pull peel two off the top. But I think that you really want to, um, you really want to have as much of a dig deep as you can first. And so, yeah, I think you brainstorm first. Sometimes maybe it's better to, to opt first. Because you could, in theory, put a card on the bottom of your library before you you faithless. Yeah, yeah, but I think if given the choices, you're yeah. never gonna you're never gonna pick opt over brainstorm. Right, for because your brainstorm instant. lets you see three, right. and opt only lets you see one or two. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So I think that's just kind of what it is. And sorry, I almost skipped over that. It's super important card, but that does take up at least two slots in our deck. I think I would start with two. A lot of people I've seen have three. Yeah. But the reason why I think three might end up being a liability is because uh, it's just dead against any type of graveyard hate. And if people are running main deck graveyard hate against you, it it just does nothing um, at all. Yeah, I mean, I hated playing this card in quantities of more than two in like mono red Phoenix, for example, towards the end of when that card was around. That was um, always really painful. You really almost never want to draw two of these. I don't think personally. So I, I'm better with having this be something that lets you really power power through if you happen to set it up properly. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that takes us to where we get to talk about the secondary threat suite. And I think we have seven, eight, nine cards <laughs> to figure out where to, to fit into this theoretical deck that we've been doing here. We, we have seven slots to fill in or we have seven to choose from between well it's both actually okay. so I think I think we have between seven and nine slots to fill in our little deck <laughs> our little fake deck that's between 60 and 64 cards right now but you know the thing that is that <laughs> the reason that I think that is it Phoenix was ever good in modern was because it had a really excellent complementary threat in thing in the ice. And that's why it's also still yes. good in Pioneer, right? Because it had a similar way to get paid off by casting a lot of spells, mm-hmm. but it attacked the board in a different way. And it also was resilient to things that Phoenix was not resilient to. And it was also an upheaval. Right. I mean, that's that's what I meant. Like Phoenix could go fast. Thing in the Ice kind of could go slow. Phoenix doesn't deal with creatures well, but Thing in the Ice does. Um, Phoenix is is uh, vulnerable to graveyard hates, but Thing in the Ice is not. 
Mm-hmm. And so you kind of get this kind of back and forth thing that lets you have an alternate game plan that fits with your game plan very well. The question is what, what fills those slots in historic right now in, in pioneer pioneer also has thing in the ice. And so you get a really kind of modern looking creature suite in pioneer in those builds, but we have better spells in historic. Yeah. So what are the things that are going to pay that off? Are you asking me? Cause I have an I mean, idea. <laughs> I mean, here's, here's a bunch of stuff. Okay. Yeah. We yeah. don't have monastery swift spear. So if you wanted to go prowessy and have like a low, low mana prowess kind of attack plan, we have soul scar mage, but that's it. Eh. Not think that we're going to do that. Monastery swift spear was never great in Phoenix, right? Because you never wanted to be super aggressive in the blue red builds. You wanted to be super aggressive in the mono red builds. And that was, that was fine. It was in the very first version of modern Phoenix when like Ross first started taking down SCG tours with it, but then he eventually moved off of it and, and most players did too. Yep. And then the secondary threat packages that I've seen right now all agree on one card. They all run Sprite Dragon, which is weird because Sprite Dragon yeah. is kind of just flying Soulscar Mage in some, or flying Monastery Swiss Spear in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. So it is trying to play like an aggressive bent with these initial builds I'm seeing from people in, in historic, but there's lots of other options as well. People are playing with brazen borrower because of the bounce. People are playing with ox of Agonis in some quantities. There's also a chance that, you know, maybe there's things that are off the radar right now with like uh, magmatic channeler, which is a card that has come up occasionally as a thing that goes well with Phoenix. Although it's never quite got there, yeah. but maybe this is the, the metagame to make it work. So I'm not sure what you're thinking about cards like this when you think about how you want to build your first pass. So my first pass, I think, is going to have minimum two, probably three, possibly four, Brazen Borrower. Okay. Because I think Petty Theft is just so, so important. Grafdicker's Cage already sees main deck play. Yeah, Petty Theft is just such a powerful and efficient spell. Yeah, and, and I think that's pretty important. Um, I don't recall if you mentioned Crackling Drake, but I think that's a nice one as like a one or two of, especially out of the sideboard. Yeah. So I didn't get to Crackling Drake. I think that that's super important too, but th- those are, that's the big question for me at the end of this is like, you have some quantity of Sprite Dragons, you have some, some quantity of Brazen Borrowers, and then that leaves a hole for like your real marquee secondary threat. And for me, it comes down to, do you want to run Crackling Drake or do you want to run Stormwing Entity? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like your true thing in the ice replacement where the other cards are really more utility kind of stuff. I'm going to throw one more in the mix. Okay. Do you want to run young pyromancer as an actual two mana thing in the ice replacement? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that that card always had trouble in modern and, you know, thing, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but young pyromancer is also available in pioneer, right? Oh yeah. 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 And it's he's playing the red black deck. Right. Like, so, so it's interesting to think about. I mean, I think that the, the home that has gotten really, really good for young pyromancer has been with village rights. Right. And so I, you don't really have access to that in this in blue red. And also um, it was people played around with pyromancer in modern as well. And it just kind of never seemed to be powerful enough, but that might've been more metagame than anything else. So maybe you could go, go wide here instead. Yeah. Maybe. I, I think that you make a good point that village rights is, is, is important there as well as thought sees to like take out removal spells because spread or um, pyromancer dies so easily. Yeah. But as far as like the threats that we like so far, 
do you like Sprite Dragon in this deck? Or are you going to try to like avoid playing that? I think it's, I mean, I love the card. Right. I just think it's a little awkward. Um, like, I don't know when I'm supposed to play it. Like, do you play it on turn two and then just swing with the one, one and then hope it grows and like swings alongside some birds on turn three or four. Are you holding it to be the actual last spell that you cast? And then it's just like rarely, if ever going to be bigger than a one, one, unless you flashback your faithless looting. Don't forget faithless looting has flashback. Right. So I think it's actually a little awkward and it has probably the least utility. I mean, it just dies to fatal push. Um, the thing about Stormwing is that it dodges so much removal. Yeah, that's the reason that I still am am very interested in Stormwing in this deck. There's a couple of reasons. And over Crackling Drake in my mind, but maybe there's some some thought to having it over Sprite Dragon, which is so, so fragile. And I don't know if we're going to be able to go fast enough to make Sprite, uh, Sprite Dragon like awesome all the time in this deck as your secondary bat threat. No, no chance it's Riddle Form, right? Riddle form? I mean, maybe that that is something that you kind of are interested in quite often. Yeah, it is. But before it? we get off of Stormwing, so I think everybody knows how much I love this card. It's my screen name in our in our Slack. It's tough because you can't play Sprite Dragon on turn two in Historic ever, of course, but it has tons of other benefits, right? So you can get value of paying for paying two mana for it, not on turn two. It's totally fine. You can bring some birds back in different ways and then play Stormwing. It synergizes really well with Phoenixes because of Brainstorm and Faithless Looting. You know, I think that it's interesting um, mm-hmm. that those spells go so well with the scry two trigger that Stormwing has when it comes into play so that you can stack your deck you can put things away that you don't ever want to draw or you can fix your your the top of your deck after a brainstorm really well with this you're like great put these cards back now send them away yeah that's and fantastic i think, I think yeah. that's kind of gonna be the difference maker yeah and then finally like you started to talk about stan it's resilient to a lot of really popular removal. It doesn't die to Blood Chief's Thirst until you get to four mana. It doesn't ever die to Fatal Push, and it can't be Skyclave Apparition. And so that's part of the reason that when I look at like the threats that I really want to play with, I, I really feel like Stormwing's probably one of the best ones that's available. Yeah, I, I think that it's tempting to overlook how good it is to avoid the skycleave apparition mm-hmm. issue which is like let's say let's say you you gird yourself up to cast that four mana crackling drake and even though it does cycle when you cast it like for your opponent to sort of just cocoa into like a skyclave apparition tag your four mana threat and you're just fishing for another important threat to get down like you really can fight through the end game with a storming entity I think a lot more strongly than you can, even with a crackling Drake, simply because of the warping characteristics of uh, Skyclave. Yeah, I'm all for it. Okay, so this is fun. I have another deck I want to talk about that, that I think we're we're all kind of excited about, and we have a little bit of time left to do it. So, do we have any like net impressions about this deck at the end of the day? Like, I worry if it's going to be able to keep up without Treasure Cruise, for example. But Treasure Cruise is broken, so you know. I mean, we'll see about the rest of the format. Like, it doesn't have anything that's quite that powerful, although Faithless Looting is super good, so. Yeah, and Brainstorm. <laughs> yeah, Brainstorm, I think, is... I, I am I am in the camp where, like, Brainstorm is very, very good. We have a lot of tools in this 
this build that we just sketched out that helps make brainstorm even better than just like in popper where brainstorm is like not that good you know it's it's fine but it, we have a lot of ways to fix like bad brainstorms or fix our hands um i don't know i don't know if, like i worry about a deck like angels versus this and things like that where it's just kind of like a lot of flying blockers that my plan just gets shut down by yeah it's it's a lot of work it's sometimes a lot of work to make some hasty three twos right yeah. mm-hmm. and and that's the kind of thing that i <laughs> it kind of gets to me sometimes when it comes to the is phoenix type truthers which is just like man you you all really like getting these phoenixes back out of the graveyard and your opponents are casting three mana five fives right you know like they're putting legitimate clocks on you without digging through two-thirds of their deck because the top 10 cards of their deck are all gas yeah i mean the thing we're really going to find out here is like can this deck exist without thing in the ice i think is where it's at because if we had thing in the ice it would be a whole other thing, right? You oh, would, yeah. Yeah. You just, you, yeah. You just upheaval all their permanents. Right. So. I mean, I'm at the point where I don't need this to be the best deck. I just want this to be a fine deck. You know, I don't want this to be so busted that, like, we lose Faithless all over again. Because that's a card that has, this may be the only place we get to do Faithless looting and Is It Phoenix uh, in a meaningful way. And I think even if this isn't, um, like, the tier zero I think that's going to be fun enough for a lot of people, including myself. Yeah. Totally but it's agree. such an explosive strategy. Like, yeah, we can talk about maybe angels being a problematic matchup, but like then you play control post board, which is something that is Phoenix is very capable of doing is like kind of shifting into a control deck. Um, and, and then there's going to be like all the free games that you're just going to demolish elves, I think, which is like elves hates shock. And if we're talking about maybe playing like up to six copies of shock, like, that's going to be a fun matchup for the Phoenix player. Yeah. Okay. So we were going to talk about another deck that we're very excited to play, which is Boros Prowess slash Magecraft slash Wizards in all formats. I think we're going to reassess and talk about that maybe next week in some form, because I think that this is the other deck that coming out of Strixhaven is going to be a thing. And I think it's going to be a thing in historic and modern and pioneer. Sound good guys. It sounds great. So I think instead what we're going to do is we're going to go to a wind down for the first time in forever and answer some questions from our friends on the internet. We don't need to take a break. We can just dive right in, right? Sure. Yeah, we can wind right in. Wind right in. already in the wind down. All right. This is so exciting. I was worried we wouldn't get to do this, but we have like about 10 minutes left. So maybe we can get through a few. First question in the thread um, is a great one. It's one that I've been thinking about recently. I'll tell you why, but. Jacob, the ankles torn, asks, when you have a friend interested in getting into the game of magic, what's the best way to avoid the feel bad for them in the early stages, especially since they're probably practicing against someone who knows what the crap they're doing? And just as a little bit of background, one of my best friends um, with whom I play a lot of Settlers of Catan and Contra 3, never been much of a magic player, said to me that he's interested in learning. And I was like, okay, well, I'll teach you with some starter decks. I've got game night, you know, Mm -hmm. but I've never, I've never taught magic to anyone. Um, So I'd love to hear if you guys have done that um, and any like best practices you may have picked up in the process. Cause I always just assume like pick two starter decks that are really easy rather than like giving him one of my modern decks and like teaching him how to navigate that whole morass. Yeah, I think there's a couple different ways you can go with this. It's interesting because, you know, Shane and I had a similar thing happen a while back around cons where he 
one day was just like, Dave, I want to get into magic. And I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah. I want, I want, I want, and like that, that's just a dangerous statement. Just like, you know, I, I want, I want to understand magic and play lots of magic. You know, that's, that's what it means for me. Yeah. And it means different things for different people. You know, like I know, I knew Shane is like a very completist kind of person. When he gets into something, he's going to get into it. And mm-hmm. it happened. Now we have a podcast and um, the here's, I will say a couple of things really quick. So one thing I think that people do sometimes that maybe is not the best way to actually intro a person is they go grab a box of boosters. If it's an enfranchised player and they go, let's play some sealed, right? Sealed is super overwhelming for people who haven't played that much. So I've actually switched over to feeling like products like game night and stuff like that. Precons are way better I think, and specifically, I actually do really like the game night, night product because the decks are actually pretty powerful, and they have four ofs of cards. That's what I was gonna. I was gonna ask you, Dave. Is like I think a lot of the intro products don't even have four ofs. I think it's like make a consistent deck that has like a few variables, or it's like yeah, it's someone for it's easier for someone to understand the plan. I think a little bit more when it's a deck that is constructed instead of something that's full of a bunch of one-off cards. And so whether you come to that through whatever venue you come through to that game, night's just one product that I think does that, but I, I've had a lot of fun with people doing that. And then you just kind of get to switch cards and stuff like that. There are also single color decks, which I think helps people mm-hmm. a little bit for the first like couple of times. And the other thing is like, honestly, I, I introduce them to arena now and say try out the color challenge try out some easy events like that and kind of go from there you know theoretically jumpstart is a product that is supposed to do a lot of this work too which it could jumps jumpstart's one of those things that i think is in the middle between like enfranchise player and the randomness that would appeal to someone who is new at the game at the same time because i think you'll get a lot of things that are like frustratingly mismatched in jumpstart sometimes where i think that the Again, the thing that's nice about a monocolor games night style deck is they know what they're going to be doing with yeah. it after a couple of playthroughs. So that's how I do it as far as product goes. And then the other thing is like I play open handed with people a lot, a bunch of times, of course, the first couple of times that you do it and try to just like explain to them why you're doing things, explain to them why, what that you can do instance on their turn and stuff like that. Like that's one of the biggest hurdles for people is realizing all the possibilities that open up between instance and sorceries. And um, that's well, how the stack I is it. hard too. the stack is just hard sometimes. So. All right. I'm, I'm going to try it. Let you know how it goes. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just like build, build. Yeah. Consistent decks with four of creatures. Maybe, maybe like a, some instance, some sorceries and sort of like, yeah, I think helping under people, uh, timing is i think the first mental hurdle of this game mm-hmm. like when you can do certain things and so like probably don't play cards with activated abilities on them play like vanilla or like french vanilla style creatures like maybe like have something with haste so like people can understand what haste is you know i think it's just lots of like and understanding if you're a good friend like you think it takes a long time to know this about a person is how they learn like, do they learn from failure and wanting to overcome that failure? Do they learn by feeling like they're getting it and like succeeding? Uh, do they learn by repetition? Or like Dave said, like, would they rather play open and be like, ask lots of questions? And that's like, I think just challenging to know about somebody. And so it's just sort of uh, feeling it out, I think, seeing what's working. Teaching is hard. Yeah. The question I wanted to get to um, is... Lou Wasteland Apologist, who asks what we've been doing to combat the MTG fatigue that many people have been feeling 
throughout the pandemic because the the gathering is not there. I would say start a podcast, <laughs> um, or, or 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 like more more legitimately, I think like um, the gathering is a huge part of the game, and I think it is. I do miss it quite a bit for sure, uh, but I think that. I think we, we talked about this with like cave Dan, I think even a long time ago and with on the slack and things like that is, is part of your community is likely related to magic, the gathering, whether that's, uh, virtually, uh, via like a, a slack or a discord or a Reddit or a forum or something like that. Right. And for me personally, I would just say that like, yeah, talking to our, our slack friends, citizens of the nation and, and keeping going with this, you can't really have fatigue and do it and like keep doing the podcast. It's like, you sort of like just push through it and don't think about it. And honestly, I do think that the, the pace of change that magic has had does keep it interesting. I think for some people it does. It's exhausting for some people. I think for some people it does exhaust them. I think for me it's, it does keep it exciting, but I'm also like not trying to keep up with the paper format right now. Exactly. I mean, I a hundred percent agree. The thing is I'm mostly, I'm mostly a um, a digital player, realistically, just because of my life. It's hard for me to go to FNM and stuff like that. So having the podcast in the Slack community has been like a great extension of that. So the most way that I've kept up with fatigue, honestly, has been to pick up another format, which is getting excited about playing historic has been a big change for me over the last you know six months or so. Yeah, I mean, the gamification of the game, like the carrots are different, the interaction's different, the pace is different. You know, just, a, just something new to pay attention to. I was actually thinking about that this morning uh, about like, man, if if we had not gotten into historic and decided to take the plunge, like, I just feel like we'd we'd really be we feel we'd be feeling more burnout. Like, man, what are we going to talk about modern this week? Like, you know, I think it's true. I think that there's a certain segment of our listeners that would be happier with us if we yes, had just stuck to modern. I but the truth is, like, we kind of had to do it for us. Yeah, yeah, you know, because for sure, it, it's it's a lot to to make content every week. And so being able to have something new to talk about, I think was helpful in the long run and re-engaging. Yeah. I mean, I find myself more uh, fatigued by lame duck formats when it's like, we know every Strixhaven card and we can't play it yet. And there's like two weeks of that. And I find that's when I'm actually least engaged because I have all this hype. um, And it feels like the current cards and decks like feel like old hat. Uh, though if Strixhaven wasn't coming out, I don't think I would actually feel this way. I'd just like be building towards something new. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now it feels like you can't really build towards something new because everything's about to change. And, All right. and this next question that you have lined up, Dave, I, I think it actually kind of relates to my response. So I'll, I'll let you ask it first. Yeah, I mean, the next question that we had was from Grant, who said, in the mindset of a casual spike, would you rather have a wide array of decks you can play to a decent degree or one to two decks that you can play very well? I think this is a question we come back to lots of times when yeah. we talk with people about the podcast when we think about when people think about who they are as magic players what do you guys think about that right now all, all i'll say is like that's actually kind of the thing that helps keep me engaged is having a collection of digital or physical cards that lets me try new things out like at a pretty ongoing clip apropos of the podcast and i i've loved mtg arena zone the website um for finding a bunch of weird new decks that people are successful with, which I think is one of the things that like untapped data isn't as good at is finding like up and coming strategies or weird, yeah. weird brews. But when you have something like MTGA zone or, or goldfish for that matter, 
like finding new stuff that I happen to have in my collection, just not put put together. I think that's one way to keep me excited too. It's kind of funny, Stan, because that like I remember your goal for this year was like to get really good, and I did at some yeah and at certain strategies. I mean, I guess you did make Mythic with Elf, so I mean, mission accomplished. He's made it many um, more times than us at this point. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> I'll tell you my secret one day. I mean, I I do like. Do you really think you have a secret, like an actual secret? Yeah, <laughs> I do. Oh, man. No, you do not. You want to know what it is? I'll just tell you now. Yeah, yeah. Just yeah. tell me. It's just playing a bunch of best of one when I'm in the bathroom. My phone's off. My phone. My FPS not good enough. Um. So, I. It's it's weird. Like I think for the podcast, I'd rather be. I'd rather know more strategies decently. Just because we're so often talking about matchups and we're so talk often talking about characteristics of certain decks and like, oh, this deck is a good matchup against this or like and like but but actually having a good amount of reps and a good amount of knowledge about that is is important to just have a well rounded view of a format, I think. I think again, if you are not like a real serious grinder, it's very hard to be somewhat so theoretically i would say if you care about performance and you're going to go to grand prix having one deck you're really good at is great however i think for most people the way that they engage with magic even casual spike players even fnm and boss type people have a hard time being the person who really is a deck specialist and so i i think it's probably most realistic to be someone who is good at a wide, uh, who is decent at a wide array of decks because you'll have more fun And that's kind of like the bottom line for me, as it's turned out. But also, I think that's just most realistic for people's energy level and and everything. I'm so delighted that we were able to answer some questions and really impressed with us with how much content we got out in this episode. And we had more, so we have a head start on next week's decks, baby. Yeah, this is, I I think, uh, a new bar for us. And we're going to have to do four topics in every episode forever. Yep. Until then, that wraps up this week's show. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast, you can tweet us at the Dive Down, all one word, or email thedivedown at gmail.com. You know, we don't talk about this a lot, but even if it doesn't make it onto the show, you can just ask us questions and we'll just tweet you back or email you back. We'll engage. Of course, we chat with people in the slack answer questions there sometimes when time allows we talk about it on air i say we should come back to this thread from all of our wonderful patrons who gave us so many good questions we should come back to it next week we should make ourselves come back to more of these questions next week i refuse if you'd like to support the show you can join our patreon over at patreon.com slash the dive down also shout out to mana traders for sponsoring the show and you can sign up for Mana Traders using promo code the dive down, all one word, to get 15% off your first three months of renting Magic Online cards. You know, speaking of the Patreon, we are actually on the path to getting to the deck box tier. So it's been 18 months in the making. Listen, if 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 you're out there, you want to dive down brand deck box designed designed by our very own Dave, the Godfather, Harburger, that's the way to make it happen. Yeah, and I got to say, you know, we we haven't designed them yet. So if we get closer to that tier, I will start posting up designs for people to vote on to pick from. And so if you want to come in and get like the play mat and help us get to that goal, so then you'll also get a deck box. Like we are getting close for the first time in like a year. So <laughs> let's let's do it. Yeah, thank you, Pfizer. Thank you, Johnson & Johnson for making that happen. Seems to be. 
they're correlated somehow. If you play Magic Arena, you can support the Dive Down without spending any money by using our affiliate link to download the free deck tracking software over at untapped.thedivedown.com. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and have a great week!